great stuff. This whole book of 2 Timothy is Paul's kind of swan song, his last words, if you will, the last written words that we have of Paul's. And, and so as you'd expect, there's some important stuff in here for us. And uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy begins with a warning. He says, but know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Now, he was warning them about the last days already. Um, You can debate over, okay, what constitutes the last days? The last days is an eschatological term that refers to the days when Jesus will return. Um, you might think it's kind of funny that they thought almost 2,000 years ago that they were in the last days. They were. He could have come at any time. And, um, but we are that much more in the last days than they are. And so if what he's saying is legitimate, you would think that these characteristics that he warns us about would increase. And you could certainly make a case that that's the case. Basically, he's describing dangerous times And the way he's describing that the times are dangerous is that people are dangerous, that there are characteristics in people that you would expect to increase and that create a danger. Now, you might say, well, what makes that perilous times? Just just because people are this way, so what? What's so dangerous? Well, um, obviously, when we're in this world, and we're called to deal with people, um, we're called to reach people, then the worse they are, the more dangerous it is for us. And that's a part of it. Um, but probably an even greater concern that, was, that Paul was expressing to Timothy is people are going to be this way, and this is really contagious. Because when the culture becomes a certain way, the culture molds and shapes the behavior of believers. And so, to me, the greatest warning isn't that, oh, be careful of those people out there, they are dangerous, but it's, let's be careful of ourselves, because it's dangerous for us to allow who we are to become molded and shaped shaped by the world that we live in, Um, because all of these qualities that he talks about are things that draw you away from God rather than draw you closer to God. And so he begins by, in verse 2, says, men will be lovers of themselves. And right behind that, lovers of money. The two go together. Um, There's an attachment to material things that's based on an attachment to yourself. It's allowing how you feel and how you're doing to be the center of your life, to become obsessed with you, to fall in love with the idea that you are comfortable, that you are secure. Certainly what the world would teach. Of course, God gives us a different perspective because he lets us know that life lasts a lot longer than what we experience in the here and now. And that if we don't get our eyes on eternity and on the big picture, on the long run, then we will ruin our lives in the here and now and it'll cost us plenty in the future as well. But to be very short-sighted is to be just in love with yourself. Whatever is good for me right now, that's what I want. And there's no quicker way to get what you want than to have money. And so he says, be careful. That's a real danger. And it has been to a lot of people. Now, especially because it's not like you can just turn away from money. And it's not like you can just turn away from yourself. You have to live with yourself. And so whatever it is that you're going through follows you everywhere. And everything that we understand and perceive in this world, we perceive in the context of how it affects us initially. And that's one thing that makes this perspective so dangerous, is that we don't have another way to begin than to begin with 
with me to begin with who I am. And, and I have reminders every day that money matters, that I have to have money to do just the bare necessities. Forget about uh, you know great pleasures and things like that. There's very little in life that I can do that doesn't cost something. And even if it's just taking a day off to go spend time with the Lord, that takes us away from a certain amount of earning potential. And so there's a, there's a monetary value that you could somewhat place on almost everything we do and certainly on everything that we have. And what makes life so frustrating is the value of everything that we have, for the most part, is going down. And that's, and that's frustrating. If you're watching your assets appreciating, um, you know, at least you'd feel like, well, you know, hey, things are looking up. Now, most people convince themselves that things are looking up in order to feel better about themselves. And so, you know, you can tell yourself that stuff you have someday is going to be worth a lot. There are some people who just hoard lots of stuff because someday it's going to be worth something. Or you can comb through the newspaper and the financial section and the internet to find somebody who's predicting that we're over the bad times, things are about to get a whole lot better, and if we can just fix those Toyotas, life will be great. But, you know... (laughs) The truth is, there's an awful lot of evidence that surrounds us that says we may be in for some more pain, and life may get more difficult, and we may end up with less money. Inflation may erode the value of the money that we do have. And so if our life is all about that, then we don't have a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Um, And it's hard in a world where that's the way everyone thinks. It's hard to get reoriented to what um, Jesus said, that if you want to find your soul, then lose it. (laughs) Be willing to lose everything. If you won't risk, then you'll never gain your soul. You'll never gain a real life. The only way to discover life is to lay your life on the line. And so that's completely backwards from what the world would say, but we live in a worldly system that says... If you don't look out for yourself, nobody else will. And the best way you can look out for yourself is by piling up as much money as you possibly can and doing whatever you need to do in order to get that money because then your money will take care of you. Your money will give you a good life. Um, It doesn't work that way. But it seems to because that's what most people think. And we live in a world that's like that. And Paul just wanted to let Timothy know that a lot of the hazards, a lot of the perils of this world come because of people's obsession on selfishness and on money in particular. But he says also there'll be boasters bragging about themselves. They'll be proud. It'll all be about you. It'll all be the tendency to defend yourself and to be obsessed with what other people think of you and to try to fight as much as you can, to maintain as much dignity and self-respect as you possibly can by puffing yourself up and by making people think that you're more than deep down inside you really suspect that you are. Pride, the scriptures tell us, comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Um, So those are dangerous things. It's what caused the devil to end up falling. He was an angel and in a great place in heaven, a place of being involved in worshiping God and glorifying him, and yet pride kicked in, and he ended up being thrown out and will spend eternity in agony because of it. And there's an awful lot of agony that we face in this life, for some even in the life to come, that traces back to pride. Pride is something that we simply must recognize as being a threat to all of us. And sometimes the people who are the most, who seem the most humble are actually the people who have the greatest amount of pride. False humility is just another form of of pride. Um, 
but boy, how we need to fight that influence. It's, it's one of the reasons why I think one of the best things that can happen to you is for someone to say or do something that gets you upset or that hurts your feelings. Because as much as I hate that, and I hate being surrounded by jerks, um, jerks are really good at one thing, and that is helping me to f- see my pride, helping me to get to the bottom of what it is that I'm fighting for, what it is that I'm trying to protect. And at the bottom of that pride is a, an insecurity. It's a fear that I'm not good enough that really has to deny what the Bible says about me, what the Bible says God has done for me. And so when somebody gets your blood pressure to rise, when someone gets you angry, when someone gets you upset, um, what a great opportunity to identify the area of insecurity in your own life and the accompanying pride that goes with that. Because those are Achilles' heels that will destroy you if you don't root them out. And truly, the way to, to glory in this life and in the life to come is to let go of your pride, is to get yourself to the point where you are immune to believing that somehow what other people think of you defines you. And therefore, you have to convince them and everyone else that you are not who you're afraid that you are. But to realize, I am who God made me. I am who he says I am. And therefore, I'll let him defend me. I don't have to stick up for myself. Someone can say something about me or they can treat me poorly. And that doesn't affect my soul. That doesn't affect who I really am. Pride gets in the way of us having that healthy perspective. And pride makes you incredibly vulnerable because the more puffed up you are, the easier it is for somebody to burst your balloon. And so God wants us to humble ourselves before him and to let him exalt us. And if it's God who's exalting me, nobody can burst my balloon because nobody can burst who he is. But again, it's one of the dangers of life is boasting and pride. Blasphemers, people will speak against you. They'll speak against God. They'll speak against anything that is perceived as being important. It comes from pride. If you are threatened by who someone else is, you put them down so that by default you're putting yourself up. And that's really all that blasphemy is. People who are out there speaking against God, they're scared to death that there really is a God. I, I get a kick out of reading books written by people who devote their whole lives to atheism. And, I, and they sound so bold and they say things that are blasphemous and things that offend me because I love God. And yet, when I look at it, I think, you're scared to death, aren't you? Scared that you're wrong. You're afraid of God. No one would bother writing a whole book on atheism if they weren't afraid of God. See, there are a lot of things I don't believe in. I don't believe that Santa Claus comes down our chimney on Christmas Eve. I don't believe in the Easter Bunny. I don't believe in Superman. I don't believe... A lot of things that other people do believe, and I won't go into that. But the whole thing is, am I going to go on a crusade about that? I'm not out there ripping Santa Claus. I don't have anything bad to say. I'm not one of these guys that's scared to death of Santa Claus, and, oh, if you put you know, a little Santa Claus on your Christmas tree, oh, that's really bad because you take Santa, you change the letters around, it spells Satan. And I, No, there is no Santa Claus. Nothing, nothing for you to be afraid of about it. If you grow up like Santa, you know, dress up like Santa Claus, nothing bad's going to happen to you. There just is no Santa Claus. But I'm not on a crusade against it. I mean, if somebody wants to believe in Santa Claus... 
It's not my life's calling to convince them otherwise. Life will do a really good job of that. And the truth is, there is a God, and I know him. And if there wasn't, people would be figuring it out all over the place. The truth is, given a little time, most people will come to the point where they do believe in, in a God because he reveals himself in so many different ways. But people who speak against God, you can't speak against something that doesn't exist. You can only be against something if it does exist. It would be absurd to be against something that's non-existent. You know, I'm against the eighth dimension. <laughs> How do you do that? What, there is no eighth dimension that I know of. I'm against an invisible planet that's in our solar system. No, there isn't one. Sorry if you think there is. You'll About the time you figure out about Santa Claus, you'll figure out that that isn't true also. But see, blasphemy always shows that there's this passion that's driven by something. And it's always insecurity. It's always the fear that you might be wrong. The fear that there's someone a lot bigger than you who made you that would cause people to blaspheme. It's one reason why when we get further from God, when we walk away from him or we just we get bugged at him for some reason, often then we will we'll say mean things about God and and get get mad at him. It's not because we don't think he's there. It's because my pride is causing me to elevate my own importance. At the same time, I'm a lot, not listening to what God says about me. And so I become really insecure. I start doubting. Now, if you doubt whether God's real or not, that's not a big problem. God doesn't freak out if he sees you doubting. Every once in a while, an idea comes to your head, oh, shoot, what if this isn't real? God doesn't go, no! He's real whether you know it or not. You can entertain the thought that he isn't. It doesn't diminish him at all. It doesn't shatter his self-esteem. When somebody writes a book and says there is no God, God doesn't get his feelings hurt at all. He just knows he has more work to do, and he'll do that work. But when we blaspheme, it's coming out of insecurity that's manifest by that kind of pride that causes us to see the universe with me at the center of the universe. I need to have that God perspective, and it delivers me from all these sorts of things. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. These all flow forth from starting with you as being the measure of things. Your self-centeredness and your pride will deteriorate into all these other things because if it's all about you, now your behavior toward others becomes affected. After your attitude toward God is affected, your behavior toward others is, is deteriorating as well because um, I can't really value you until I understand how, how valuable I am. Until I receive God's grace, I really can't show God's grace. And so, the, but the problem of putting me in the center and starting with me and working my way out is God gets eliminated from my consciousness and eventually no one else matters either. And so your parents, those that you would be thankful for, you become unholy, you just lose touch with that which is of eternal value. Unloving. The word there in verse 3 for unloving is not the normal word, one of the normal words for love that we have in the New Testament. This is a, a word that refers to just having normal interest and care about things and people. And so to become unloving, really it just means you're abnormally unfeeling and uncaring in a, in a sick sort of a way. You're becoming 
pathological, you're becoming a sociopath. Um, unforgiving. The word there um, is a word, it doesn't quite really literally mean unforgiving. What it means is that you're basically not negotiable. The word actually literally is no libations. See, when they would, when they would negotiate and come to a peace agreement with someone, then they would always have a drink in order to seal that agreement. And so this word came to mean what it means because it's saying you won't sit down and have a drink with anyone. You won't, you won't negotiate. You won't sit down with people and give, compromise some of your positions and they compromise some of theirs until you come to a, a decent agreement. Um, but in our version, it's translated unforgiving. Slanders, speaking against others, without self-control. Isn't this true when everything else falls apart? You just quit taking care of yourself. You, won't, you can't stay on a schedule. You don't, it, it's like your whole life is trashed and, and your days just fly by and you go, I can't do anything about anything. My life feels like it's out of control. It's really what one of the things that depression does, and it's why when you're depressed, self-control becomes a really important um, exercise. The, and that's why it's the anchor of the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control. And when we lose it, self-control is a good place to start to work your way back up to love. Put some structure, put some discipline in our lives. But when, when I put me at the center and then I become really disillusioned because no one else puts me at the center and I really value money and I realize I don't have enough and it's shrinking the money that I have. And so I begin to lash out at others in my pride and selfishness. I begin to treat other people poorly and therefore I end up even being more alone, more alienated. I have less reinforcement that I have any kind of value in my life and so I get mad at God and I and I not I can't see anything that I'm thankful for and I don't want to negotiate with anyone and I just become bitter and I lose control I just lose it life just happens to me and God didn't create you to be a victim of what life is going to do to you God created man originally, put him in the garden, and said, you are in charge. Here's my creation. I'm giving it to you. Subdue the earth. Take control. Take responsibility. And After the fall, pull weeds. Work hard. Take control. Do whatever you can to influence in whatever ways that you can. Now, a part of self-control is recognizing what is outside of your control. And a lot of times, people who don't have any self-control, the reason why they don't is they're spending all their energy trying to control other people and trying to control things that they can't control. Nothing more frustrating than trying to control others, trying to manipulate others, or trying to control the weather or the stock market or what happens to you, or trying to control the way other people drive, or trying to control whether or not other people act the way you want them to act. <laughs> Eventually, you'll lose all control if your emphasis of your life is trying to control things that are outside of your control. But if you recognize that your responsibility is to control you by the Spirit of God helping and leading and guiding you that you really can take control of your life, then you are at peace, then you can find that place of humility, then you don't feel like you're a victim of everything because you are learning as Paul learned, in whatever state I am, I've learned to be content. How? Because I'm worried about me. I'll do what I can do. And if I know at the end of the day that I've done everything that I can do, then I can let my head hit the pillow and I ought to be able to rest. Because like Jesus at the end of his day so often, he would realize, 
I did everything the Father wanted me to do. Oh, there were a bunch of people who wanted Jesus to do more stuff. But he said, I did what the Father wanted me to do. And that's where we can be if we walk closely enough with the Lord that we're hearing from him and taking responsibility in areas where he has given us responsibility and rejecting responsibility when other people are trying to give us responsibility that God hasn't given us, or by where we are frustrated with our environment and therefore we want to alter those things around us that are not our responsibility to, to control, we'll end up frustrated and ultimately out of control. And you know what people usually do when they're out of control? They usually hurt themselves. They usually do things that they know aren't good for themselves. No one ever yet decided that, you know what's the best thing I could do for myself right now? To just go get drunk out of my mind. No, going to get drunk is a surrender. It's just going, throwing your hands up and going, I don't, I don't want to think anymore. I don't want to feel anymore. I don't want to feel an obligation anymore. Boy, it just feels good to take my hands off the wheel and let the car just go careening down the highway. Um, it doesn't work well. It gives you a momentary sense of relief because if you get drunk, you are letting go of the control of everybody that you've trying to, you're trying to control. You know, you, you, it's amazing. <coughs> Other people look, look a lot better when you're drunk. I don't know another way to put it. And the reason is because, okay, I can drink myself into a stupor where now I'm not interested in controlling you anymore. But, see, that's not what God has for us. He gives us a little segment of life called me and my responsibility. And he says, focus on that. Let me help you with that. Let go of all the other stuff, and you will have that great feeling at the end of the day that you had a productive day. You got stuff done. You accomplished something. And you don't have to lull yourself into sleep. You don't have to drug yourself into a stupor. You don't have to drink yourself into, a, into surrender. You can instead just go, why don't I just let go of this stuff while I'm still sober? And with whatever capacities I have, let me do something about what I'm stressed about. Let me do something about what I'm concerned about and and utilize that wonderful gift of responsibility and self-control that God has given us. When we don't do that, when we lose our focus, everything will end up coming unraveled. Even if you are a control freak, God will allow you to get to the point where everything is out of your control, where things are, your life is falling apart. And that's just a natural progression that happens. It's dangerous because you do really stupid things when you're losing self-control. And he goes on and says, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, that is, you're not a person of your word anymore, headstrong, stubborn, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You opt for just what feels good right now. And he says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and from such people turn away. It's not usually that you reject God, even, in these kinds of scenarios. It's just that you have God with a little G, but there's no power in your life. You're not experiencing the Holy Spirit working in you. And so you're actually, yeah, there's a form of godliness. You're religious. You go to church. You might read a few verses and pray and whatever. But you're denying the power. That is, you're not allowing the power of God to work in your life because you're still hung up on being a lover of yourself, a lover of pleasure, a lover of money, 
a prideful, angry person who will not negotiate with others, all of these things destroy your faith, ultimately, because faith isn't working. And so you may be really outspoken as, oh yeah, they're a Christian, I know, they go to church. And you may, and you may even convince yourself that you're one of the most spiritual people you know. By the way, if you, if you really feel that you're more spiritual than most people, you're not. <laughs> because when you're spiritual, you don't feel that way. But see, what happens is as it then becomes unraveled, all you're left is with religious language, some religious words, a shell of reality, and yet there's no power. No power to get your life into, under control. No power to put others ahead of yourself. No power to really sense God working in your life. You instead become a victim of yourself. And once you're a victim of yourself, you're also a victim of everybody else. See, um, bullies always know this. You remember, maybe some of you were this kid in school. Some people just seem to have a target on their back. And everybody is, you know, it's like, oh, that's the whipping boy. Everybody else is making fun of them, so I guess it'll make me feel better if I make fun of them. And we set ourselves up that way. And ultimately, that's when life just really stinks, is that we try to hold ourselves together, but our life is becoming unraveled and we're proud and nobody appreciates who we are. No one values us like we do. We can't get along with anyone. And then the worst thing of it all is, where is God? I don't see his power. I don't feel him working. I can't hear him speaking to me. And that's dangerous, it really is. And as he says here, be careful that you don't hang around people like this because it's contagious. From such people turn away. That doesn't mean don't have anything to do with people like that because um, you'd have to go out of the world if that was the case. But turn away from them in the sense that I'm not drawn to you. I don't want to become like you. And it's important to at least limit our contact with people who are in this kind of a rut. Reach out to them, try to encourage them, be an example to them, but be careful because when you're around people like this, it makes you want to be like them. And you would think, how in the world does that work? Well, it's easy. If I'm around you and you're thinking of you, I'm gonna think of me. and Therefore, I become like you. I become infected by the disease that's eating away at you. And that's why we, we are so prone to pity parties where we sit and talk with other people and I tell how much my life stinks and you tell how much your life stinks and we walk away from it all feeling worse because of it. And you know the difference when you are with someone who's thankful, with someone who's selfless, with someone who's caring. At first, it feels good to the selfish part of you, and then it feels like, hey, wait, I want to I wanna get in on this action. I want to be this way. I want to be this type of a person. Good, godly behavior is just as contagious as bad, ungodly behavior. And therefore, who you choose to associate with um, should give it some attention. And there may be people in your life who, are, who are, love God, who are Christians, and you care about them greatly, but the way they're choosing to live their life looks more like this stuff than that life of humility and God-centeredness and sharing with others and self-control. And find those kind of people to influence you as much as you can. And I know they're rare. That's why it's important that we all try to be those types of people too. But turn away gently. Don't make a big production of it. But just limit your time with people who, who bring you down and who affect you in this way. Try to find people you can hang around with who, who raise you up 
to another level, who get you excited, who make you feel good. And I guarantee those aren't people who are puffing themselves up. That doesn't, that doesn't work it. So he says, four of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, we're talking daytime television. <laughs> And he says, now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these people also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds, disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. He uses Janus and Jambres, the two um, magicians who were trying to imitate the miracles that God was doing through Moses when he came before Pharaoh. And he said, there are people in your life who are having the same kind of an effect. They're talking a good game. They profess to be believers. They might believe even the right stuff. But when it comes down to it, they are imitating what the Christian life really is supposed to be. And these are dangerous times because I believe that most of us will at one time or another find ourselves in the place of Janus and Jambres, having a form of godliness but denying its power. That's what's so devious and diabolical about these sorts of um, decisions as to how you're going to live is that it will turn someone into an imitation of that which God wants us to be. And then we ourselves are capable of being a bad influence on others. And so he says, you know, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Um, you ever feel like God keeps teaching you the same lessons? <laughs> I know I do. And this is classic of that, of just going making, putting your life into an endless loop. It's like it's Groundhog's Day over and over and over and over and over again with Bill Murray. Because, is that who was in Groundhog's Day? I think so. But because you don't ever move past the same old stuff. Shame on us if we are continuing to have to have God speak to us about those few character flaws that he's been talking to us about since we accepted the Lord 20, 30, 40 years ago. And he says, that's what happens. And maybe for that person, you need to start making some new friends, start hanging out with people, often with young Christians who still have such an innocence that they can lift you out of the jadedness that you've fallen into because you've just been settled so long where you are. But don't be one of those who resists the truth, disapproved concerning the faith, progressing no further, just running into a wall, looking stupid to everyone, losing all sense of who you are. Those are important warnings and things that we all need to take to heart. Because if it's a peril, it's not going to be easy to see it. When it starts creeping into your life, you won't notice. And you'll generally blame other people when you do see, begin to see it happening. But Paul would say, no, take control of your own life. Don't let this happen to you. No matter what circumstances life throws at you, do not put yourself in a position where you stop growing, where you stop making progress, and where you just start playing the game of Christianity. Contrasted to that, verse 10, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, what I teach, my manner of life, the way I live what I teach, 
my purpose, what it is that's important to me, what drives me. You've seen my faith. You've carefully followed my long-suffering, my love, my perseverance, even in persecutions, afflictions, like happened at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. (coughs) Out of them all, the Lord delivered me. He said, you've watched my life. I am not a phony. You've seen me tested. You've seen me not give in to those temptations to become self-centered, not take the easy way out. You haven't seen me blow my stack. You haven't seen me lose control. You haven't seen me puff myself up with pride or get offended when someone doesn't respect me the way I think I deserve. No, and, and I had plenty of excuses to do that. Yes, and all, verse 12, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a promise that no one wants to claim. But if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to go through hard times. And the cool thing is, the persecutions are what tests you and teaches you how to live faithfully. They're the best thing that could happen to you, is to be treated poorly. Again, because when people treat you poorly, you'll find out whether you're prideful or not. I've mentioned many times, and I don't know where he heard it from, but Pastor Romain used to say this all the time. You'll never know if you're really a servant until people treat you like a servant. I like the idea of being a servant, but I really don't like people to treat me like I'm their servant. But those are opportunities to bring out the worst in us and let us repent and bring out the best in us and let us give glory to God because we were victorious, because we, we didn't give in to our baser nature, but we, this time we handled it well. Paul said, if you really want to get serious about growing in Christ, you're going to suffer persecution. And evil men and imposters, these phonies, will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Expect it. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from a child, from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Paul said, get back to your base. If you think it's bad now, it's going to get worse. If you think the people in your life are evil now, wait till you see the evil people who are coming. But he said, when that happens, get back to your base. Get back to where you started. Get back to what you know. As Pastor Chuck often says, when I come across things I don't understand, I hang on to what I do understand. Get back to basics. It's what you do anytime things become confusing. It's what happens in sports when, when things begin to come unraveled and things start to fall apart. A good coach will always say, let's get back to basics. Let's get back to the nuts and bolts. Let's get back to the X's and O's. Let's get back to simply doing the fundamentals and stick with what you know and where you started. Get back to home base. Get back to something solid that you know for sure. When I used to fight, there are times, believe me, when I didn't know where I was, literally. You get hit in the head so hard that you're just, the room is spinning. And the problem is when someone sees you with that look in your eyes, it's like saying sick them to a dog. Here they come. And so I had to train myself. Besides, I always used to keep um, an ammonia capsule in my glove so that when I just felt silly like that, I'd hit my wrist and take a whiff of that ammonia and it would kind of help. But I also trained myself to get back in a good stance and to begin to throw 
my favorite techniques. What it is that I could do in my sleep, I would do it. And any time in a fight, when I don't know what to do, there are things that I will do instinctively almost because, I've, because that's where I start. That's, that's where I'm coming from. And in my life spiritually, it's the same way. When Satan's knocking me for a loop, or generally I'm knocking myself for a loop, it's like, okay, get a whiff of ammonia, you know, get my nose in the word, and then what do I know? Start there. It's one of the things, one of the best pieces of advice I've heard for um, people in dealing with the ups and downs of life, and I, I think I read it in a book um, by Wayne Cordero called Leading on Empty, um, great book, when he talks about just burning out and things like that as a leader. But he said he always makes sure he goes and spends time with the Lord, and he gets to where he's feeling really good. He's like, I am now at the peak. I am so close to God. I'm seeing my life clearly. And he said, it's those times that I journal and I write down what God is showing me. What's my life about? What is my ministry? What is my calling? What am I certain of? What do I need to do in my life in order to maintain a healthy perspective? And he said, when I'm feeling out of control, I go back and read the stuff I read when I was sane, when I was in my right mind, when I was close to God. And I, and I think that's great advice. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy to do. Get back to what you know. Get back and start over and go with what you know is true. And he said, and then obviously, knowing the scriptures from a child, you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This book is where it all starts. <clears throat> and then he says, and you're familiar with these last two verses. Well, they should be underlined in your Bible, if you underline your Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, it's God-breathed that just comes forth from him. Now, that doesn't mean it's dictated by God, but it means that it is what it's supposed to be. God used human authors to write Scripture, but he was inspiring them, and they wrote from their own perspective, from their own testimony, but they wrote exactly what God wanted them to write in their own words, in their own way. But you can be certain that this book is exactly the way God wants it to be because he is the one who inspired it. And I often say that I believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I don't think there's a mistake in here. Not that there aren't some scribal errors or things that got confused in the handing down, but in the original writings of the Scriptures, of which what we have is incredibly, incredibly accurate to those. Um, very few passages in the Scripture that you even have to wonder about. But all of that is something that I trust with my life. I don't, I'm not going to sit and pass judgment on the Scriptures and say, I think this part I like and this part I don't like. Because the part I don't like is the part I need the most, the part that fixes me. So I will never sit in judgment on the Scriptures, nor will I ever even entertain the idea that some of it's without error and some of it is. I'm not even going there. I have a lot of, of intellectual and academic reasons for that that we'll go through in another time, but, but my main reason for be, believing in the inerrancy of scriptures is a purely pragmatic one. I am not capable of deciding which parts to believe and which parts not to believe, and so I just believe it all. And I have never yet been steered wrong by believing what the Bible said. I have never found that my life wasn't incredibly better when I believed what he said as opposed to when I didn't. All Scripture, given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for throwing the brakes on and you know a Scripture reminding you, whoa, I better not do that for correction, 
That word means to straighten something that has been crooked. It's, it's, it would be like knocking the dents out of a fender. The scripture's really good at that. And we are all dented. Life dents us. We're twisted. And the Bible is just the best way I know of for that correction to take place. And so I submit myself to it. And for instruction in righteousness, <coughs> most important part of it probably is how do you live right? How is life supposed to work? A lot of times we're, we're so focused on what we're not supposed to do that we don't allow the Bible to tell us what to do and how to live. And Jesus said he came that we would have an abundant life. When life's not working very well for me, when I'm having a bad day, I'm not doing it right. And the Word of God will teach me instruction in righteousness. In order that the person of God, the man or woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This book is what we need. Everything that we need for life and godliness. There's nothing else. And what God wants to do is to help us to grow up. That word complete means mature. And equipped for every good work, when we allow ourselves to be fed with the word of God, we're ready for whatever's coming down the road. Whatever happens in the future, like the commercials for the Apple app store, there's an app for that. There's a verse for that. For everything that you will ever face, there's a verse for that. And that's one reason why studying the Bible is so great, because you'll find those things, and you'll have them at your disposal, and they're ready, and someday you'll certainly need them. So, wow, what a great chapter, huh? Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. It is all that Paul told Timothy it is, and so much more. And this chapter just kind of gives us an outline of what's messed up with us and with this world. And it ends up with the solution. You and your word. God, may we be people of this book. May we be those who live righteous lives, who do it right. Allowing you to be God finding our humble place in your kingdom, letting you be our security, letting you be our defense, letting you be our reason for life, letting you be our leader and our guide and our glory. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're gonna enter in